Please continue to lift up uh, Joanne Shabelsky in prayer. Uh, just keep that on your heart and mind. Tanya and Hank uh, had the baby. I, most of you guys probably know that. I heard it was 9.9. <laughs> Woo, big baby. So thank God that she's okay and everybody's doing okay. And going from one side of the spectrum to the other, Mark Morrow's mom has a birthday today. And I think he told me she's 89. So give her a round of applause. That's a long life in the Lord. Bless that. So we are continuing our study through the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 22. Uh, I was telling the leadership the pastors and elders, I was planning on getting through Joshua by the beginning of January because we're going to start a series on anxiety. That's going to be good. So if you can make it, tune in. Uh, a lot of that's going on, culture and the world and all that, those things. But uh, we won't do it today because it's going to be a little slack and I'm only going to get through one chapter here. But remember last week, the land was given to the children of Israel in verse 43 of the previous chapter. And the Lord said this, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. And we spoke about God is faithful. God keeps his covenant. And we're under a better covenant, a covenant of grace ratified in the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I also punctuated that by saying the Lord gives victory to his children. And there's no rest without victory. And the Lord was saying that everything that he had promised the children of Israel came to pass. He keeps his promises. Then he keeps his promises. Now the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then now we're going to move into the 22nd chapter. And there's a difference dynamic that begins to go on. The seven years of wars in Canaan is over with. Joshua is rallying, rallying the army together to give them an honorable discharge. They've been faithful. They've been victorious in battle. He's sending them away, and there's great pathos. There's great emotion in this scene as we look at this. And let us not think that Satan is somewhere in a corner in a fetal position saying, I give up, because he's not. He's not been able to stop them from conquering the land, but he, he, as you know, he doesn't give up. So his next strategy immediately begins a grumbling between each other, wanting to have a civil war. And if you know anything about civil wars, more lives are taken in civil wars than international wars. They're, they're just terrible civil wars. And that's what Satan is trying to start right now. But there's going to be lessons in this that we need to learn and principles that we need to uh, take part in our lives. Verse 1 says, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And forgive me for this because when I'm teaching 
I read things over and over again. I'm studying. I read it over again. And you guys, I don't know how many have been with me from the beginning of Joshua, but I keep going back and forth different tribes. One tribe is on one side of the Jordan. The other tribe is on the other side of the Jordan. And what I have to frequently remind myself when I'm teaching, I have to teach as if I've never taught it before and that you guys have never heard it before. That's why the context is good to have so you can understand what's going on. But remember, I don't want to presume on anything. The 12 tribes, as they come from Kadesh Barnea, and they see that great Jordan that's overflowing, never been like this before, and two and a half of the tribes... Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stays on the Gilead side, the eastern side. The reason they stayed there, and it's going to be important, is because they say, hey, there's great pasture land over here. It's for our cattle. We can raise cattle and do well over here. So they're really outside of the promised land. And when they told Moses this, Moses was heated, upset, and he says, okay, I'll tell you what. We're going to allow you to build your homes on the eastern side of the Jordan, but your men of war must go with us, and you must fight with us to inherit our land. And so they have been faithful to that. They did that. And so now Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're about to go home on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now, remember, the promised land, you can read through your Bible from Genesis to Malachi, the promised land is situated on the western side of the Jordan. Every time he speaks of the eastern side of the Jordan, the Transjordan, it's always Gilead. So even the Lord himself says, The best for you is in the promised land, but they want it to stay on the other side. And so Moses says, okay, you've been faithful to that. Joshua said, the commandments that you give, that you, Moses gave you and the commandments that I've given you, you've been faithful. You went to war. You went to battle. We've defeated all of our enemies. Can you imagine going to war and only 22 men die? Only 22 men die in the whole land of conquest in Canaan. And the reason they died is because of Achan's sin, walking in disobedience. So now they're getting ready to go home. So let me read it again. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. These soldiers, they have an honorable discharge here. And now the Lord your God has given rest, there it is, to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents. And to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan. You can imagine 
the emotion that's going on here. If you've ever been on any mission trips, this is what it's kind of likened to. And you get wherever you're going, whether it's Colombia, uh, Ecuador, El Salvador, where, when you get there, you're kind of standoffish. You don't know how people are really going to treat you there, but they're supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. And f- from the beginning, if they are who they say they are, you mesh. And then you begin to serve together and you begin to work together for that week or that 10 days or whatever. And then when it's time to go home, the tears begin to pour. The weeping happens and you're just hugging people. Hey, stay in touch with me. All of these things, all of these emotions are going. Can you imagine seven years of fighting, of laughing Uh, wrapping up people with their wounds and all of these things, and you just, that knit, you just grow tighter and tighter. And now, these two and a half tribes, after all of this, they're about to go home. A lot of emotion is taking place. Verse 5 says, Joshua warns them, but take careful heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, And now take notice the order that the Holy Spirit rolls these out. First, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And what he's saying is, your military obligations may be over with, but your spiritual commitment are still there. They will abide with us forever. They are never lessened. And that order, again, is vastly important. The Shema tells us in Deuteronomy 6, 5, Hear, O Israel. They would repeat this three times a day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Because God knows if he can capture our heart, he will have no problem with the rest of us. If he can only, if we can only give him our heart, we're going to obey him in the rest. The problem is, it's when he has our body, but he doesn't have our heart completely. That's when the issues arise. So Joshua, remember, he's an old man at this time, looking at these men that served with him, under him, ready to go back home. And Joshua, I'm sure he begins to remember what God has spoken to him in Deuteronomy chapter 31, when he all of a sudden, God calls Josh, uh, Moses And he said, by the way, bring Joshua with you to the tent door of the tabernacle. Now, as I was reading through the Old Testament, it's not many times the Lord will say, hey, meet me at the tent door at the tabernacle, that something good was going to happen. Somebody has been disobedient somewhere. And so when Moses gets there and Joshua gets there, the cloud, the presence of the Lord comes over the tabernacle, and he begins to speak to Moses. And this is what he says to him. You will rest with your fathers. That would be bad news if Moses didn't know the Lord. 
that would be very bad news. But Moses knows the Lord. And so then God continues and the bad news drops. This is what he says. This people telling Moses and Joshua, this people will rise up and play the harlot with foreign gods. They're going to forsake me and break my covenant, and I will judge them and drive them from this land and forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And then he says, for I know the inclination of their hearts. Now, this God, Yahweh, has just brought him into the promised land. All of the promises has not failed And even when he was doing that, he says, I I know the inclinations of their hearts, their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. And then he says, and for you, Joshua, you're hearing all of this, but be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Now, listen. He says, be encouraged. Why should Joshua be encouraged? He says, because I am with you. Not because of everything will turn out okay. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Not because I'm an old man and I'm going to spend all of these years leading them into Canaan. And then I'm going to spend all of these years warring, seven years warring with them in Canaan. And I know while I'm doing all of this, these guys are not going to be faithful to the Lord. That would be a bummer to know that God has says, hey, I've given you all these things, but yet and still you're not going to follow me. And he says, I'm going to drive them out of the land that you're going to fight for. But pushing all of that aside, he tells Joshua, be strong And be encouraged, for I am with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus said in Matthew 28, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So Joshua must be thinking as he's sending these tribes away, I wonder how long before they turn away. From following the Lord. And he says this with great passion and he exhorts them okay, you're gonna go now to the land that you wanted, but walk with the Lord. So in the latter part of verse five, he says, But take careful heed to love the Lord, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, to serve him. This is great advice to us in our pilgrimage down here. Jesus told the church of Ephesus in Revelation, the first church that popped up, he begins to speak about, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. Not that you lost it, you left it. And he tells them, he admonishes them to go back and do the things you did before. If you ever feel like that, that you're becoming lukewarm and, and, and the passion, and you don't feel the presence of the Lord. And we don't go by feelings, but you know what I mean if, hey, I'm just dry. We need to go back and do the things we did before. And the Lord will show up. He tells them in verse 6, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their tents, 
with great emotion. Verse 7 tells us, now to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan, westward in the promised land. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them saying, return, let's, let's watch and see how good God is. Re- return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. And then watch what he says. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. Because they had people on the western side, the eastern side, who did not go because the women was over there and somebody had to protect them. So those who had remained with the stuff, God says, uh, Joshua says, when you go back, now you divide everything up with them also because they supported you. While you were off in war. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and a group of his men, they get back to Ziglag. They were fighting the Philistines. They hear a word. They come back to Ziglag, which was their home base. And the women and children, everything has been gone, taken. Burned up their houses, everything. David says, Abiathor, bring me the ephod. And he begins, to, and he asks the Lord, Lord, shall I pursue them? And he says, God says, yes, pursue. Lord, will I overtake them? He says, yes, you will overtake them and recover everything. So David goes, and he's chasing after the Amalekites, him and his men. And they find them in the valley, and they're just having a great party down there. And they go like God has said, and they slaughtered all of them. They had all of their women. They received all of their children back. And as they go back across the river Bezer, there's grumbling and complaining from David men. And they're saying, hey, we're not going to give these other guys anything because they did not go with us. And David, when he gets to the camp with, rest, with the rest of the men, he says, no, I'm going to make a statute right here that those who stayed by the stuff, by the supplies, get the same thing as those who go to war. That's a great principle because I'm no missionary, but I'm sure you guys, we support missionaries and they're out in the field and they're doing the things and they're going to get rewarded for that. But if I just support them by prayer or by giving here and there, I'm going to be rewarded just the same. And so that's a great principle. It does not matter. Uh, You might have a loved one that's in the mission field. Continue to pray. Continue to provide when you can for them because the reward will be the same. And they make a statue there. So they've divided the spoil, and they're going to divide that when they cross the Jordan. Verse 9 tells us, So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh. Remember, the tabernacle is not at Gilgog anymore. The worship center is not at Gilgog. They moved it to Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And notice where the, the tabernacle is. It's in the promised land, the exact place it should be, in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, on the other side, to the land of their possession, 
which they wanted, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, they made their trek, they're getting ready to cross, which is in the land of Canaan, and they come to the border of the land. And once again, I know it had to be a very emotional scene that's happening. It'll be the last time they cross over Jordan again. Remember, the first time the priest had went into the water, and the Jordan piled up on each side, and they saw that great event that takes place. And so now they're about to cross without the priest. It's not deep anymore. They can just go across it. And before they cross it, they see these 12 stones that God had commanded the children of Israel to put up as a memorial. And, and the reason God said that, he says, I want you to pile these 12 stones up, get them out of, the, out of the Jordan River, pile them up, because when your children ask, meaning they will ask, what are these stones for? You can tell them all of the great wonders and the great display of power that Yahweh did for you guys. So that's very important. So they see these 12 stones, how he made, and they look in the distance and they see the walls of Jericho that had fallen down. And they remember the sun and the moon standing still in the valley of Agilon as they're getting ready to cross. And they remember how God defeated Ai and all of their enemies in battles. And they seen these great hailstones. Remember that? When they were the, the men of Ai was fleeing, and God took care of them with these hailstones, and they're remembering all of that. And so emotions are welding up, and they're wondering, are we making the right decision? They're wondering, and they're beginning to feel isolated from the rest of the tribes, and they're wondering, should we have settled on the western side? And so they have all of these thoughts that's going on in their hearts. And then it says in the latter part of verse 10, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great impressive altar. Now, the children of Israel heard someone say, now, if you have the New King James, that's what I read, but it's in a, someone is in italics, and I know it's in italics in the King James Version. So the word is, the children of Israel heard say. It's someone hearsay. Now, I know we know what that means, hearsay. Well, that's what's happening here. We're familiar with that. The children of Israel Finally, given everything that God has told them he was going to, he's destroyed their enemies. They can lay down their weapons. The wars are over. And then on the basis of hearsay, they're going to go and kill Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It will be a great civil war if the Lord lets this take place. There's no enemies left to defeat. And now... The real enemy has them looking at one another, wanting to go in battle against one another. And we need to take note of this because the children of Israel, they hear. What do they hear? It says, behold, the children of Reuben, 
the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. Now listen, what they had heard, it was true. What they had heard, it was correct. What they had heard, it was accurate. But what was communicated was wrong. And and that's the problem. Because what was communicated to them is that they built an altar to offer sacrifices. And they're they're not going to honor the Lord if they do that. Because once again, the tabernacle is in Shiloh. God says, there's only one place that I want you to offer sacrifices. And that's at the tabernacle, and that's in, Sh- in Shiloh. And they're thinking that Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have set up some competitive altar to worship some other god other than the one true god, Yahweh. Now, what this is, this is disinformation. What this is, is a false dossier. What this is, David Hickey, you know what I'm about to say. This is fake news. That's exactly what it is. They've heard, and now they're just running, and they think they're going to just go by their raw emotions. Once again, they had built an altar. That was true. But what was communicated to them was wrong. And the reason being because so many times in our lives, this is all of us, somebody will communicate something to us, about one of our brethren or sistren, and what we hear might be accurate, but what's communicated is wrong. And it's on the basis, once again, of hearsay. And we're ready to sharpen our swords and go take someone down on the basis of hearsay. And we're vulnerable to all of this. That's why the Lord has it here in the text. This person said this about you. This person said this about me. And right away, I'm sharpening my sword. I'm looking for the verse that I'm going to attack them with to straighten them out. And sometimes, I wish it was all the time, but sometimes I am so thankful that I have kept my mouth shut when I'm hearing hearsay. Because when I find out the totality of the situation, I say, I'm glad I didn't say what I started to say because now I have the whole story. I'm, I'm usually ready. How, how, how is it is? Ready, fire, aim. We shouldn't do that. I can do that sometime. But we need to take it in, digest it, pray about it, and then go and see what's going on. Verse 12 tells us, And when the children of Israel heard of it, once again, on the basis of hearsay, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Their zeal is commendable here, but their rationale is not. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 in his epistle, he says this, Even so, the tongue is a little member. And boast great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. 
The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature. And it sets on fire by hell. Abortion is promoted through the tongue. Bigotry and hatred is promoted through the tongue. Marxism and immorality is promoted through the tongue. But the Bible says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And then he goes on to say, and sets on fire the course of nature. That word course speaks of a wheel. And the wheel is there because it speaks of your round of existence. That's why it says, and it and is set on fire by hell. The good thing about the tongue, it comes in a cage. So we should learn to keep it shut sometimes because it does come in, in a cage. And we have to understand that. We might have two or three friends in the round of our existence. We might have eight or nine friends in the round of our existence. But when you begin to hear saying you talk to one another, because they're your friends, they'll take it, and they'll probably defend you and, and their friends. And before you know it, there's a whole fire that's kindled. And God is saying through James, no, you shouldn't do this. You should never go to war with someone over hearsay. These guys had fought together. Some has died by others, and now they're about to start a war because of hearsay. Right away, when they hear this, the seven and a half tribes react negatively, and we're thankful they're going to say, calm down, they're zealous, but the Bible tells us being zealous without knowledge is not good. Being zealous leads to the birthing of cults. We have to know the full counsel of God here. So this is what they decide to do. In verse 13, it says, then the children of Israel, they've heard it, they're fired up, they're ready to go. Then the children of Israel sent Phineas. And if you know anything about your Bible, the Old Testament, Phineas is a bad dude. He has a zeal for the Lord. The son of Eleazar, the priest to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land, here it is again, of Gilead. And with him, ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying... Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, they said, okay, let's do this right. We want to go and destroy them, but God knows human beings, and God knows how we can be rational at some time. So God puts it in his word what we should do when hearsay arrives. If you hear someone in one of your cities which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, God knows us. Corrupt men, the King James says men of Belial, men of the devil, have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall do what? Inquire. 
And then he says, not only inquire, but search out and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it, and its livestock with the edge of the sword. But the idea is, this is not true. Then you should spare them. You get a conversation going on, and you might hear a rumor, and somebody, their first reaction is, once again, I'm going to combat against this person. But God says, that's not the way to handle it. The first thing you do is gather some people together and go make an inquiry. You don't say, I heard this or I heard that. You don't do that three months later. When you hear it, you gather people together and go. And while in the process, if you don't do it right away, I know about this. Seeds of discourse begins to filter through the body of Christ. Did you hear about this? And did you hear about that? And the person they're talking about, they never know because they think everything is okay. And then finally, after those three months or four months, when they come to you, they don't come to inquire and ask you. They come pointing fingers and saying, you did this and you did that. And God is saying to eliminate all these things when you hear something that doesn't sound right. You take a group of people and you go. A group of people like-minded. A group of people who knows about grace. Elder people, and I'm not talking about elder in age. I'm talking about mature in the Lord. Because what you want to do is not to win your opinion, but you want to win the cause of Jesus Christ. That's whose honor we're trying to defend here. And so he says, that's what you do. You don't gather a posse together and go and destroy someone. So verse 16 tells us, thus says the Lord, thus says the whole congregation. So they go and say, this is what the entire congregation is saying. And it's never like that. The whole congregation is not saying that. But when you inflate things, when you're exaggerating things, you always inflate with great numbers. People will come and they will say, everybody's upset. And when I hear that, I know it's not everybody, maybe one or two. So they begin to say, this is what you've done. They say, what treachery? And that word treachery means trespass. What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel? to turn away this day from following the Lord. That's wrong. In that you have built for yourselves an altar. That's true. But what they're saying is wrong, that you might rebel this day against the Lord. Is this iniquity of pure not enough for us? Remember when Balaam, he could not uh, curse the children of Israel. So he said, this is what you do. You get Moabite women, let them go into the camp. And then God, anger will boil up and he will punish them for that. Well, remember how the plague was stayed because God sent a great plague while all of this was going on. And it was Phineas 
He goes into a tent and he puts the spear through two people. And the Bible says the plague stopped. He was zealous for the Lord and he still is. From which we are not cleansed till this day. We're still having repercussions from this. Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, verse 18, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. And it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord, and that's not what they're doing, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 19, nevertheless, now, this is beautiful what they say here. If the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord. Come over to our side of the Jordan where the Lord's tabernacle stands. And please notice this and take possession among us, but do not rebel against the Lord nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. This is an extremely gracious offer that they give them. They say, if you're not, you've decided you're not happy being on the western, on the eastern side of the Jordan, will you guys come over here where you should be anyway in the promised land and we'll give you some of our land. That's gracious. You have to understand there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people on the eastern side of the Jordan. And they're still saying, come and we will give you some of our land. We'll give you some of our portion. What kind of sacrifice, think about this, are you and I willing to make to see someone else restored? What kind of sacrifice will we do to make sure someone is restored? Galatians 6, 1, which is the reason the church is called Calvary Restore, it says this, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, don't have to be old, don't have to be young, but you're mature in the Lord, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness, not pointing a finger and accusing, considering yourself. The reason I don't accuse is because I know me. And the same trap that you may have fallen in, I'm just as likely to fall in it too. So when I go, I go to restore, not to push blame. What is wrong with you? You know better than that. How could you make that mistake? Pointing fingers, pointing fingers. Mm -mm. It takes maturity. Go and restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. That word uh, uh, gentleness is carn... Lord, give it to me. It's a mending word. I can't think of the, the, the Greek name, but the name is a mending word. If you... I've never... Praise God. I've never had a broken bone. But if I say if my arm was, was, is broken, I wouldn't want you to come and let's fix this thing. Let's snap it back into place. No, I want you to be gentle. So it's a mending word. And he says, that's how you restore people. 
in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. A lot of our hearts have been trampled on. A lot of our heads, for the wrong reasons, has been lopped off. Because instead of going to someone in love and inquiring about the matter, we go in self-righteousness and accusing temperament. And automatically the ears close anyway when that happens. So they're both, I commend them for their commendation, but I don't for their condemnation behavior here. They were zealous, and that was good, but they determined by their behavior the reason is because of their hearsay. They heard something, and they ran with it. And when it's hearsay, once again, there's only a partial truth there. That's why they continue to make their case here. It says in verse 20, they're still rebuking them. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel. And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. He wasn't the only one that suffered there. Then the children of Reuben, they finally speak. The children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, Yahweh El Elohim, he knows, and that's the only one we have to worry about, what God knows. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. Allow the Lord to punish us. If that's what we're doing, they're saying the Lord knows our hearts. That's good and bad sometimes because, you know, when people are in sin, they backslidden or something and you go and confront them in love, hopefully. And they said, hey, you know, the Lord knows my heart. And you could be thinking, yeah, he knows your heart. That's the issue. But what they say, Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, they are true to their boo because they understand they have not really did anything wrong. They understand the reason they have built this altar. Verse 23, and they continue to speak. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if, it, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. Let the Lord deal with us. We agree to what you guys are saying. We agree to our faith if, I, if that's the reason we made this altar here. If we violated God's word, have at it. And now they give their reason for erecting the altar. It says in verse 24, but in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason saying in time to come. Now notice this. They said, this is why we did it. Your descendants in the promised land may speak to our descendants that was on the wrong side of the Jordan anyway, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? And so what they're saying is we're worried when in generations to come, your children over there, they're going to say to our children, because we're on the other side of the Jordan River, you don't have anything to do with the God of Israel. So that's why we built this memorial, 
to remind everybody we're a part of the worship of Yahweh. It's an altar of memorial, you guys. It's not an altar of sacrifice. But their argument is a little suspect. I said this from the beginning. Because the only reason they're on the eastern side of the Jordan is because of business. Great pasture land. They're not over there because of their children. Because if they would have been thinking about their children, they probably would have stayed on the western side in the promised land. And then they begin to blame God. They say in verse 25, for the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. No, he didn't. They were all supposed to be on the western side in the promised land. Now that they've gone back on the eastern side, they say, it's not our fault that the Jordan River is there. It's the Lord's fault. We tend to do that. Well, I'm not going to say you guys do. I tend to do that sometimes when something goes sideways. If I haven't prayed about it, if I hadn't asked Lydia about it to pray about it, and it turns sideways, Lord, it's your fault. When I never inquired of him, they say, You children of Reuben and the children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. That's what they're saying they're going to say. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Now, remember the 12 stone memorial is already there, and that's why it is there. Those 12 stones are there because the Lord had told them to put them there. I really don't know if the Lord told Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to build their altar. Even when Moses said, okay, you guys stay over here, Scripture is silent about did Moses go to the Lord and ask him. But knowing Moses I'm going to ride with him. I believe he went and prayed, and they said it was okay for them to be there on that side. But once again, they don't get the full blessings of the Lord. So they build these altars, and they begin to do all of this. And we have to be careful about these things. What does these stones mean? That's what they said. You will tell them the whole story of the crossing of the Jordan when they see these 12 stones. These piles of stones were there according to the word of God. The other altar is built because they were afraid that something would happen. And there's no evidence, once again, that God told them. This is my point. I want you to hear this. Let's not build altars God hasn't told us to build. And what I mean by that, let's not build religious stuff that we've not been instructed to build. And I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians, latter part of verse 9. If anyone preaches, now please, sometimes I can say things and I get back and they said, I thought you said that. I can't believe PV said that. And they did, they misunderstood. So for the next 10, 15 minutes, ride with me, trek with me, okay? Paul says, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed, anathema, damned. Now, what is the gospel? What is the good news? 1 Corinthians 15 says this, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible, that's the gospel. The Bible, and that's what I ride with, knows nothing, nothing, nothing of a social gospel. Not the scriptures. If you're preaching a social gospel, guess what? My Bible tells me that's another gospel. And Paul said, by the Holy Spirit, let him be accursed. Now, there's things that's important in our lives that's important to all of us, important things. And sometimes there are things that are good for us to remember for one thing or another, one reason or another. But I would say to you guys, if there's a prohibition or something in Scripture, don't even begin to think about something like that. Because the Scripture tells us this, abstain from the appearance of evil. That's what it says. Now, track with me. When God said in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I don't have to build another altar. That's what he said. That's what he meant. I don't have to build another altar. Black lives matters because God has already spoken on the matter. I don't have to try to build another altar. He's spoken on that subject. So I know that there's an ulterior motive there when those things begin to happen. There's a behind-the-scene agenda there. If we are human beings, and we are, all lives matter. I don't have to build another altar. Black lives matter. Brown lives matter. Pink lives matter. No, 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 no. Because God has spoken and he has built that altar All lives matter. That's what he's saying here. We, every human being is the image bearer of God. And their lives matter and their lives are valuable. I don't have to build another altar. This is the problem when you build another altar. Now listen to me. Because imagination and misinterpretation is just waiting to find ways to those kinds of circumstances. So don't even build an altar that you're not going to use it as your real altar. And my real altar is the word of God. They're saying, yes, we built an altar, but it's not really an altar. It's a memorial. And the problem with that is the next generation, they're going to have to know the intent. And that's always the issue of the people who originally set up this altar. My grandkids, the small one, Sage, uh, Ethan, when they are grown up, they're babies down, and they're scratching their heads. If they're believers in Jesus Christ, and if they are who they say they are, and when they look back at the history and they're saying, I want them, this is what I want them to say, and I believe they will say it, What's all this I'm reading in history? What hap- what's going on with this 
Black Lives Matter movement. What was going on? Don't those dummies know that all lives matter? That's what this altar says, what the Lord has said. That's what he's saying. All lives matter. End of the subject. Grandpa, they didn't understand that. No, Sage. They had an underlying ulterior motive. And it's showing already. I mean, look at the news. It's showing already. But my point is going back to just the basis. I don't have to build another altar but the word of God. Anything outside those guidelines becomes blurred. And you can misinterpret uh, it. And you can do anything you want to with it. But you can't do that here. They built an altar. Any icon generationally down the line, it turns into something else. That's why the word of God stands and it will always stand because it is the word of God. Give you an example. Remember when in the wilderness, God told Moses, once again, a plague has set out because they're murmuring and complaining. They were beginning to get bit by snakes. And God says, Moses, this is what you do. You go get a pole, put a serpent on it, and anyone who looks at that serpent will not die. Didn't, didn't say they wouldn't be bitten, but they won't die. Well, many years later in 2 Kings chapter 18, guess what they're doing? They are worshiping this brass pole. Hezekiah takes it, grinds it up, breaks it, and says, Nehushtan, this is just a thing of brass. It means nothing. Because the true worship is at the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, those that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And true worship happens there. Do not add, do not subtract to the gospel. Do not add, subtract to the Bible. It says what it means. We're all created in God's image. So anything else, you can really kick it to the curb. He says in verse 26, therefore, we said, let us now, this is our reason, prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in in the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. If, they, if they're where they were supposed to be, they would never had to build this. Verse 29. Far be it from us, and they're true with it, that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. If we want to worship, if there's going to be any shedding of blood and sacrifices, we will go to Shiloh. This is funny to me, verse 30. Now, when Phineas, the priest, and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the, the divisions of Israel who were with him, 
heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Good, they're relieved. I guess Phineas stopped sharpening his javelin at this point. They're okay. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. No, it was out of their hands. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel. It will always be the children of Israel on that western side of the Jordan, which is the promised land. And brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle. To destroy the land where the children of Israel and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad call the altar witness. Ed in Hebrew. For it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The worship team can come up. I will leave you with this. If ever you, myself, or anyone has to go and confront someone, please go in love. Please go in the spirit of meekness and gentleness. Not accusing, not browbeating, not on accusations, but have the correct facts. And also, and I've said this before, Those two and a half tribes on the eastern side, yes, they are children of Israel. They are children of God. But I guarantee you, those that are in the promised land have a much deeper walk with the Lord. They're right there. They have possessed all of the promises, and they will continue to have them because they're on the right side. We can be as close to the Lord as we want to be. He wants us all. He, Peter, James, John, every time a great miracle would happen, every time a great healing would happen, those three dudes were always there, Peter, James, John. He loved the other disciples, the apostles, but they didn't get to see mighty wonders and mighty works and intimate. Just imagine in the Garden of Gethsemane and seeing him sweat great drops of blood and say, Pray with me, and he depended on you guys to pray. They were the only one to get to see those things. We can be as close to the Lord as we want to be, and truly, those are where the blessings are. We grow and we mature when we walk close to him. Let's pray. Father, I say it time and time again, you are an amazing God. I think Chris Tomlin said the same thing. But uh, you're amazing. For you to tell Moses and Joshua, I already know the inclinations of their heart. I brought them into all these great and precious promises. I've given them everything I told them I would. And they're going to rebel. Lord, may we understand your heart, how much you love us. And may you give us grace to not trample on your grace and your mercy. 
Will we remember the great price that you paid? We always talk about that greatest price, dying on the cross for our sins. But I believe just the greater price is God becoming man and walking on this earth for 33, 33 and a half years. All because of your children that you would call into your kingdom. May we not take your grace for granted. May we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives that we may honor you in word, thought, and deed. Like David says, we want to live holy lives because we don't want the enemies of God to have any reason to blaspheme your name by our walk. We want to bring honor and glory. We want to exalt you, Lord. And we only do that by walking upright with you. So, Lord, give us a heart to want to do that. Give us a heart to surrender everything and allow you to have your way. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.